this is this is a, a bit of a long conversation. We as a we as a country have felt free over the last thirty to fifty years to mortgage our future, and we're doing that by by shortchanging our education system, by shortchanging our healthcare system, so that children are sick and therefore can't learn and can't fulfill their p- potential. We're we're doing that by misallocating our resources in places like healthcare and military spending, which we should be spending on the future, but are, instead are spending on the past. This is a long conversation, and it's not really a lefty or a righty conversation. It's just facts. Look at how the trillions of dollars we've spent on nothing, <laughs> and we have nothing to show for it, whereas, whereas the future is being created all around us. And you know, if we don't get our act together, the future is going to bypass us. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Do you have young kids at home? If so, this episode is incredibly important for you. We are talking about the future of education and trying to change the way that the U.S. and the world look at humanity's future, our children, education, and their future and the future of work. This is a really interesting and important episode, diving into some of the biggest problems when it comes to the education and healthcare space. And we're doing it with a world-class guy, Jeff Ralston. He's the founder of Imagine K-12, an education-focused vertical within the incredibly successful accelerator Y Combinator. Previously, Y Combinator has backed companies like Dropbox and Reddit and is hands down the number one startup accelerator in the world. Through Y Combinator and Imagine K-12, Jeff's backed over 100 education tech companies. And in addition to that, he's a prolific angel investor with 80 portfolio companies and 18 exits to date. Prior to joining YC as a partner, Jeff was the CEO of Lala Media, a music tech startup that ended up being acquired by Apple for $80 million. He was at Yahoo and spent quite a few years as the chief product officer. Jeff's an incredibly interesting guy in an incredibly interesting industry with a really, really strong background. In today's episode, we discuss the major problems with America's education system, how startups and YC are working to redesign education, is college actually necessary, and what does the future of work look like, how venture capitalists can make outsized differences in the world, why education and healthcare are so damn expensive and slow to adapt, and the ethical issues of education and how we can fix them. And now, without further ado, I give you Jeff Ralston. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So, Jeff, I typically would walk people through an introduction to what they've been involved in, but sometimes I just like to jump right into it. So what's broken with our education system today? That's a long topic. There's a few things that that I think are are still broken. As you might know, I started a a company, a, a startup accelerator called Imagine K-12 in 2010 and 2011 kind of bridged the two years to try to address one of the issues with the American education system anyway, which um, was sort of a twofold or maybe even threefold problem. So I'll start there. One of the problems that that my co-founders and I saw was that the world had changed radically over the preceding couple of decades in terms of how information had been made available and was consumed by everyone, not the least of which by children. And yet the school system in the United States did not seem to have evolved in any way with this radical revolution, if you will, in in terms of knowledge and information. And that seemed weird because if school is about nothing else, it's about acquiring knowledge and and information and learning how to use that knowledge and information most effectively. So that seems strange. 
at the time, you weren't even really allowed to have access to the, the wider uh, world of knowledge and the connected world in schools. And so we, we created Imagine K-12 to fund companies that would try to change that, to try to help technology get infused inside the classroom to, to help prepare children better for this new world we were in, and also just to prepare them better because there's a lot of reasons to believe that technology could help a lot. But other problems that we were hoping that perhaps technology could help with or has a potential to help with is the long-term and pernicious achievement gap in the United States that no one seems to be able to effectively tackle. Mostly this is between people of color and not, but it's also a socioeconomic issue. And it's one of the reasons that the United States fares so poorly on the world stage when you look at how well we're preparing our kids and how well our kids do on international measures of, um, of preparation and achievement. So it really seemed like we weren't doing a very good job of preparing our children for the future. And simultaneously, we were allowing, we created an incredibly leaky bucket where kids, generations of children were just falling away and really losing their potential, their potential for a good life, their potential for a productive life, their potential to be everything that they could be. And those things are all still true, I'd say, uh, seven or eight years later. And so it's something that uh, Imagine K-12 is not part of Y Combinator, and we, and we, we think hard about that and struggle with that to, to, to imagine that we can, maybe not just with technology, but at least partially with technology, move, move a needle that might make a real substantive difference in so many children's lives. Well, not just that, but it's an exponential flywheel, because as you make kids smarter and more successful, they make the economy larger and more successful and create jobs and everything, everything just snowballs from education. And yet, at least from where I'm sitting, it seems like two industries have been really, really stagnant in terms of their ability to innovate and improve. And that would be healthcare and education, primarily, at least in my opinion, because they're highly regulated. What are your thoughts? It's not just because they're highly regulated. I, I think it's actually fascinating to compare those two industries because they have so much in common. One of the ways I used to try to illuminate that for, for people who think it's purely an issue of regulation is I just, you know, I, I imagine yourself walking your child to a school hand in hand and here's your five or six or seven-year-old and you take them to the school door and the door opens up and the teacher says, welcome, guess what? we're going to be trying all sorts of really cool experiments in education to see if, see if we can do it better. It might be worse, it might be better. We're going to try it. And your child gets to be amongst the first that we try these experiments on. How happy are you? It's a very good point. You can understand where there might, why there might be some inertia in something that is as critical to parents and children as preparing them for their future. Likewise, in healthcare, there's a lot of understandable inertia in not moving too quickly because people's lives are at stake. But that doesn't mean there's not truth to what you say in terms of regulation. Uh, it, th these, these, um, these are really enormous, complex systems that have built up over time. And there's complex, enormous bureaucracies. And the systems and the bureaucracies are enormously resistant. They have built-in resistance to change. So the, the change has to come, in a sense, from within. That's one of the powers of technology, by the way, and you see it happening. It, it can infiltrate into a system and change it, hopefully for the better, in ways that 
are, are perhaps unseen until it's quote unquote too late, but in a good way for the system. And that's why it's kind of interesting to see how technology is infusing itself into schools in some very interesting ways. And if, you know, five or 10 years ago, you would never get an email from your doctor. But nowadays, that, all that seems to be breaking down and, and electronic medical records are getting more and more common. And there's a whole bunch of tools that, you know, doctors I talk to are just incredibly excited about. Uh, I was just talking to a doctor about it. Uh, I, I, won't, I won't promote anyone's new product, but there's this really cool product which did a, did a pre-sales campaign, like a pre-sales campaign, you know, like Pebble Watch did from Y Combinator to, to have an ultrasound that you could connect up to your iPhone. And they sold thousands. It's, it's this amazing thing. You know? and, and you just, you know, I don't think you can underestimate how that sort of uh, disruptive change can and will make a big difference in the end in people's lives. And that's why I wanted to get you on to talk about those disruptive changes, because I think we're at an inflection point in terms of the education systems of the past, more or less factories for corporate jobs, and the education systems of the future for a much more diverse and changing workforce. How do you see us moving forward? And what are you excited about when it comes to ed tech? Well, I I guess the answer to that question is a good news, bad news for me personally story. I'm excited about a lot. Uh, we, we have some imagined K-12 companies and there's other tech companies that are doing amazingly well. And there are Imagine K-12 tools companies from Imagine K-12 created tools that are essentially every school in the country and, and, and hundreds if not thousands around the world. And that's great. And they're creating platforms for change that are, are perhaps too slowly, like in their own narrow way, making a difference. Uh, like I said before, I'm not convinced that they're moving any needles. And there are bright sparks of light, the way I think of them, in the American education system, where people have figured stuff out. Where you look at some schools like a charter school system called Summit Public Schools, where everything is built around personal learning plans. And they have, they have, their, their goal is to turn this, this gap on its head and say, for, forget the achievement gap. We're, we're, not, we're not interested in closing the the gap by 10% or 20%. We want to close it all the way and then some. We want all of our kids to go to college. We want every single one of them to participate in the future. And the success they're having with, you know, the software that they're creating with Facebook, believe it or not, is or, or a group of Facebook, you know, Zuckerberg Foundation. This was, this started before the Zuckerberg Foundation, but the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, but who was very involved in education, as, as you probably know, but they have funded engineering to create software that is then g- being given freely out to other schools. And, and the last count was, was a couple hundred schools are using it, but I think it'll, it'll be more. It's hard. It's very complex to, to shift a school to this kind of mode, but, but it, it, it really works. And so there's, there's really bright sparks of light there that, that ought to give one hope. Uh, by the same token, I'm not that excited by anything I'm seeing. Ed tech right now. There's, there's really good companies coming up, but I don't see massive change yet. And I'm trying to figure out what that means and, and what that might mean I should be spending my time on in the future. But I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I, you know, if some of it's impatience, Matt, I want stuff to move faster than it's moving. And these are, these are gigantic ships, the healthcare system and the education system, and they move ever so slowly. And again, to reiterate my point, some of that's on purpose and some of that's good, but we need to move. The future is happening really quickly. <laughs> Whether we're an inflection point or not is always arguable, but it's moving. It's coming here fast. 
And it would be best if we were well prepared for whatever change comes. Coming here or somewhere else fast. Let's play devil's advocate, though. So you said these schools are really trying to close the education gap and get all their kids to go to college. And I would argue that's the wrong metric. That college is increasingly becoming irrelevant. What, uh, how, what, what, what would you think? So I know with the, with the type of people that you're working with on a day-to-day basis, what percentage of them are actually focused on something they studied in college? I think that's the wrong question to ask. I don't know, but I think that's the wrong because I, I don't tend to go around doing that survey. But, um, uh, you know, here's the thing. I actually am, uh, am of multiple opinions when it comes to going to college, but I mostly believe that the years for most children, the years, they're not barely children anymore, for most pre-adults, the years between 18 and 22 are extremely formative. And it is far from clear to me that and we fund great companies doing incredible work like Lambda School and Make School and others that, that are helping, that, that are providing education in usually software uh, that you don't really need to go to college for and you can just do it. Although a lot of people who go to these schools have already gone to college. There's a maturation that, that happens in those years, which indicates to me, that I, but I mostly believe now, and maybe I'll change my mind and, and believe me, I, I feel free to to, to, to come back some other time in the future and say, I, I don't think this anymore. But I think mostly that most kids should spend, you know, high school, the years from 14 to 22, becoming the people they're going to become and not doing startup companies or, or joining Google as a software engineer at 19 and so on. I, I think that they're missing out on something. But they're also, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate. I, I could agree and disagree both ways, but they're also missing out on $100,000 in debt. Okay. So the way we finance education in this company is fucked, in this country is fucked up. I think that's separate, but true. You have a point. There's $1.5 trillion in, in school, in education debt in the country. And it's outrageous, stupid, idiotic. You know, oh my God, I could go on about that. I do think it's a separate question, but uh, sadly related in the United States of America. That's a, that's a U.S. problem, right? It's an English-speaking country problem because I think most of the English-speaking countries follow the U.S. into a broken system versus in Germany, I had a friend who was complaining because tuition got hiked and now it was going to be 600 euros a year as opposed to 300 plus that covered all the public transit. Warning, wisdom alert. Jeff is about to drop some major knowledge bombs on our country, the future, and how we view our children and their futures. This is really, really important, really, really valuable, and could not be said better. So make sure that you're paying attention and think about this. Take a second, take some notes, and make sure you're plugged in. Here's Jeff. This is a a bit of a long conversation. We as a country have felt free over the last 30 to 50 years to mortgage our future. And we're doing that by by shortchanging our education system, by shortchanging our healthcare system so that children are sick and therefore can't learn and can't fulfill their potential. We're, we're doing that by misallocating our resources in places like healthcare and military spending, which we should be spending on the future, but are, instead are spending on the past. This is a long conversation, and it's not really a lefty or a righty conversation. It's just facts. Look at how the trillions of dollars we've spent on nothing, <laughs> and we have nothing to show for it, whereas... whereas the future is being created all around us. And, you know, you know, uh, if we don't get our act together, the future is going to bypass us. Or split off entirely. I, I imagine if California had the ability to become its own country, it would probably seriously consider it. Yeah. Tim Draper wants to become three different states entirely. So I don't even know. Uh, uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. 
that's the, that not in, not not in the world as it's currently configured. So there has to be a lot of other changes before. There do have to be a lot of other changes. Speaking of which, let's say I gave you a magic wand and you could you could redesign the entire education system. Maybe you design it just for your children. Maybe you design it for everyone. How would you how would you go about doing that if you could completely eradicate what was existing? Just from just from your background, both as an ed tech type guy and a startup guy. I've thought a bit about that question, but I, I always get a little bit stymied because I, I don't think we have quite an, enough data. I'd do a few things. First, I would make sure that every school in the country was absolutely fucking beautiful. That when a child entered into that school, it just felt like a place to learn. It was like there were no bars on the windows. There was no urine in the halls. It was just beautiful. Second, I would probably get rid of middle school because it's a disaster and make it all same sex. Third, I would have every child start to learn software at probably elementary school. And fourth, I would, I would um, do everything in my power to make being a teacher the most prestigious job in the country. And lastly, I would, I would build a system that paid attention and tracked, but not in a creepy way, in an illuminating way, every child so that we would know as soon as that child, if anything went wrong with that child, alarm bells would ring and there would be an intervention so that no child truly got left behind. Okay, that's off the top of my head and it's probably not quite sensible, but... I think the teachers one is especially relevant. You look at other countries and they actually care about teachers and then you look at the US and people are quite literally getting upset with teachers because they want to have a living wage. It's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit absurd. I wonder how much of the, the Chan Zuckerberg uh, education software, I wonder how much tracking there is in there. That could be a... That could be a whole nother, a whole nother can of worms. Well, when you have personalized learning plans, you know a lot about each child and you can do interventions. Like, wh- wh- how, why should any child, if you look at, if you look at the, the kids up through, you know, kindergarten, first grade, there's, there's very little achievement gap, but then things start to diverge. It doesn't have to. <laughs> we could stop that. We could just intervene right then if we had the will and the, the means, but we don't. We don't. We let it happen. We, we literally let it happen. It's, it's a, um, I think I said this already, so I'm reusing it, but if I didn't, I should have. We're mortgaging our future for nothing, for nothing. We're spending our resources in the wrong places. We're paying attention to the wrong things. And because of that, um, the future standards of living of all of our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will suffer. I'm glad that there's people that are passionate about this like you. One of the, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, what's it like working as a, as a YC partner where all of, your, all of your peers get to invest in the sexy companies and you are going for the ones where very few people have heard of or will ever hear of the names of the companies you invest in? I think I get to invest in the sexy companies. I've invested in, I've invested in, in several sexy companies. I think the companies coming out of YC are super sexy. I would agree. I meant more ed tech versus like consumer tech. Well, some of the ed tech companies I've invested in are super sexy and some of the not. I, I get to invest as a partner at YC, I get to invest in all of them. I've heard the stat tossed around before and I'm not 100% sure that it's true. But my understanding is when kids come into school from, from poverty or, or lower income backgrounds, the, the stat is they've heard, I don't remember if it's 3,000 or 30,000, but when they enter pre-K, they've heard somewhere between 3,000 and 30,000 less words just over the course of their lifetime from having less exposure from parents. And uh, is, is that true? 
Hey, Matt here, following up on the word gap. So it turns out by the age of three, there's a 30 million word gap between lower and higher income students. So when they're entering school at pre-K, three years old, the kids that are doing better and in the higher socioeconomic classes have heard 30 million more words than the ones in lower economic classes. That creates major, major problems and is something that our education system has got to be able to address, especially at a young age. Now back to Jeff. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a, a lot of research that indicates that that the achievement gap starts startlingly early. I, I actually don't know that it's been demonstrated that that the um, the lack of vocabulary that kids hear when they're as early as one, two, three years old um, is deterministic of future results. Nor that there's not some intervention you can make that would catch kids up really quickly. Kid, young children's brains are extremely plastic all the way through, you know, um, all, the way, all the way through into their 20s, as it turns out. So I, 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 I sort of doubt. I, I, what's not, what's unquestioned is that it, it, it's helpful for kids to have the kind of conversations that kids at a higher socioeconomic level get early on. But I'm not convinced that even if that were or a more intractable problem that we couldn't fix it later. Uh, there's a lot of evidence, I think. There's some evidence anyway, that you can fix it. Uh, of course, you know, there's, uh, it's hard to do longitudinal studies here and really have good answers. Certainly, it's true that you can track, you know, you, if, you, if you start looking at vocabulary, you know, the, the, the number of words that, that are ascribed to, to, to certain children very young and then want, track their results, it's not, it doesn't look good and it does look like it's related, but it's hard to hold variables independent there. How do you think about the successes of many of the large U.S. and U.S. tech companies? Do you th- think that's a function of the, the education system as a whole or more just the, the ethos of the states? You know, I think, I think probably the reason, there's been obviously big tech successes in other countries too. So it's not something that's exclusive to the United States. But you have to remember that it is still true. The United States is the biggest market by far in the world. <laughs> so it would be unusual if, the biggest tech companies in the world didn't come to the United States as well. So that's probably the biggest effect. There's also a Silicon Valley effect, right? Where we have sort of the perfect magic combination of elements that you need to create these brand new tech companies. California has been the engine behind that. Obviously, there's companies coming out of Seattle as well. <laughs> I'm not exclusive, but, but I think it, it, it's probably explainable by that. You know, it's funny for a lot of our listeners outside in the, of the States, they, they probably envision Seattle as also being a California, <laughs> uh, uh, California, California city. Um, what's it like being a partner at YC, uh, working with some of the most interesting companies, the pressures, the highs, the lows? How'd you get connected with YC? What was that arrangement look like? And then what's it like being a partner on the day-to-day? Paul Graham, the founder of YC and I, both ended up at Yahoo in the late 90s. My company, 4-in-1, was purchased to create Yahoo Mail. And his company in 1997, and his company, uh, ViaWeb, was purchased to create Yahoo Shopping in 1998. And uh, so we got to know each other then. And when I left Yahoo in 2006, we started spending some time together. And I started, I, I did a lot of angel investing then. And I started coming to YC Dumbo Days. And I didn't join YC right away. I ended up taking one of my early angel investments. I was sort of the founding investor. And I, I ran that company for a couple of years. And then when I left that and was thinking about what to do next, Paul started recruiting me to be a, a partner at Y Combinator at the same time 
is myself and my co-founder at Imagine K-12, Tim Brady, decided to found Imagine K-12. And Paul, <laughs> when, when, when I talked it over with Paul, he said, that's a great idea. An ed tech vertical is really good. I can't really serve that many ed tech companies here or properly at Y Combinator. So you should start that. I'll help you and you should become a partner here at the same time. <laughs> so that's what I did. It's a very, very compelling sales pitch from a very compelling salesman that uh, I, I got to imagine. Is it, uh, what's, the, what's the worst part about it? About working at YC? Yeah, or just the, the entire ecosystem environment and your day to day. Oh, I think it's probably the best job in the world. I get to work with extraordinary founders all the time who are passionate about changing the world. And, and hopefully, if I'm lucky, I get to help them in substantive ways that make a difference for them and you know, play a small role in, in their hopefully extraordinary success. And I actually feel very lucky to be able to do that. This year, I'm doing a couple things different. I'm spending more time with a couple of even broader classes that we're teaching. In the spring, I organized a class called Startup Investor School, which was intended to help angel investors become better angel investors. So it was a four-day class we taught in Mountain View at, at YC. And just last week, we launched this year's version of Startup School, which I'm organizing, which is a MOOC, a massively open online course for startups around the world. And Believe it or not, 27,000 approximately companies signed up to be to either audit or actually participate in the class. And it's, and it's a real class that companies uh, meet in a group every week. They submit updates. They, they have software tools that we created for community and for connection. And it, it's really, our, in a sense, it's a couple of things for YC. It's, it's, it is one way for us to sort of give back. We think innovation and entrepreneurship go together and that those are almost always really good things for, for people and for economies everywhere. It's also great. Uh, we all, you know, frankly, it's good for, to, to help YC's brand and to, and to actually create a funnel for us of great companies to, that will eventually apply to YC, we hope. There's no requirement. And maybe become part of future batches. We, um, we're actually doing a cool thing this year, which is that even if you don't get into YC, 100 companies are going to get a $10,000 grant equity-free from YC just to, to create incentive and, and hopefully help them be successful. I hope you're cross-selling all of your portfolio companies' products to all of these companies. It has a massive database of potential customers. Then. Well, you know, we're, we're trying not, we're, we're not, we're not doing too much of that. We do have some deals that, that YC companies are offering to those, to those companies. So we're doing maybe a little bit. So there's a Stripe deal and a Clerky deal, but there's also an EWS deal and a Google Web Services deal. So we're trying to, we're really trying to focus on the companies and help, helping them be as successful as they can. Today's episode is brought to you guys by Monday.com. Imagine being one of the first apps ever in the App Store. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Guess what? It's coming around. Monday.com is launching a platform that powers 100,000 teams' daily work. And they just launched a contest to build apps to be included in a marketplace launch. They're giving away prizes. It'll blow your mind. Imagine if you had been there when Steve Jobs had finally opened up iTunes. It would have been a big deal. If you want to be one of the first Monday.com apps in their app marketplace, start building today. You can check it out at Monday.com slash disruptors. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S. Monday.com. It's a work OS that powers teams to run processes, projects, and build custom workflows all in one workspace. It's nice, easy to use, flexible, and great for remote work. Teams of any size, they love it because it allows them to move faster and hit those goals. 
So if you want to be one of the ones who gets in front of those hundreds of thousands of teams that are already using monday.com, go to monday.com slash disruptors, build your app, build your business, monday.com slash disruptors for more details. Why did you initially start Imagine K-12? Are you a parent? I am. I have, I have three children. My father was a lifelong educator and I had felt deeply about education for a long time. In fact, when I left Yahoo, I decided I wanted to start an education company. And, um, and I actually spent quite a bit of time. I actually got together with a couple of interesting guys, one named Sebastian Thrun and the other guy named Astro Teller. And the three of us worked together for a couple of months trying to figure out what ed tech company we could found together. And we kind of failed. We kind of, like it just, in the end, we just couldn't, it, it didn't seem like the, uh, the American school system was ready <laughs> for us. So we all went off our separate ways. Sebastian went back to doing self-driving cars at, at Google and ended up later founding Udacity, which was similar to one of the ideas that we had had. And Astro went back to New York, but eventually came back and ran Google X and it still runs Google X. And I went off and did the things that we That was about. probably one of the most modest statements of people on your team ever. We had just a couple of cool guys. You had two of the absolute world leaders, plus you, who, and you're absolutely no jump in any right. You had well, three incredible people on. But I think you said that right. Two important people and me, but... <laughs> but no, I, I, think, I think what you're doing, I, I'll be very, very honest. What you're doing is incredibly fucking important because the, the, the education of our children and the future is quite literally the future. A lot of people build interesting products, but to be honest, does it really matter if Facebook optimizes something or Facebook buys your company? Yeah, it's great for outcomes, but in the grand scheme of things, education, education and healthcare are two of the big ones. They're two of the broken ones and we're tackling one of those. So not not to toot your horn too much, but being very Well, well, thanks. I feel like um, my my, um, focus has gotten a little broader now that we that Imagine K-12 has merged into YC and and I I think a little bit of my... um, excitement about ed tech as a, as a separate domain has lessened a little given that I see a lot of sameness and a lot of incremental stuff. But I am extremely proud of some of the healthcare startups that, that we're funding at YC. We're one of the biggest funder of biotech and health tech startups in the world right now. And some of these companies are just doing awesome things. So if I'm really lucky, I'll have a small hand in, in helping some change in both, uh, both of those domains. What industries are you most excited about today and why? That's a slice that I never look at. <laughs> I'm interested in ideas, and I like. I don't sort of say I need. I need it in a particular industry. I want. I want ideas that that. I'm interested in ideas that are cool and 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 make a difference. And you know, one of the companies in the latest batch that that uh, that did the best in terms of raising money was a company that from France, believe it or not, that helps ports optimize how they move containers about. How cool is that? Now, like how big a difference does that make? And I don't know, but like, it's just using really smart software to make the world better because then it's more efficient. And, you know, there's, there's more wealth created. That can be really cool, even though it's not helping more people live longer or create better outcomes for people. I just think it's a cool idea. And the founders are awesome. You know, I get really excited by great people and ideas with passion behind them. And so I never do that slice of industry. It could be anything. I completely agree with what you're saying, but I'm also going to call BS. What technologies are most exciting for you? Not in terms of companies to fund, but just in terms of if you're randomly off doing something and you're suddenly on the internet, what are you looking into? Obviously, Hacker News, but what are you looking into if you're actively seeking something out? Well, I think... uh, 
I think there's a, a couple of pat answers to that 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 are kind of boring at this point because everyone says it. I think that I think that what we're doing with OpenAI at Y Combinator is stunning, and I think the progress is amazingly fast. And the um, the infiltration of of intelligence infused software of all kinds is changing everything, and it. it it's going to cause disruption in so many industries. Disruption on top of disruption is as as this intelligence gets 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 broader and wiser and more capable. I'm also fascinated by synthetic biology and the changes that's about to wreak in healthcare and and what it means to be a human being. I'm sure you're familiar with CRISPR technology, and there's questions about about the efficacy of CRISPR. But I think that's just that's like a technical glitch that people will deal with. But the far-reaching effects and impacts of these technologies like, are, are well beyond what most people are talking about. The, 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 we're going to start calling into question what it means to have children and what it means to be a human being. The merger of technology and biology which is essentially what synthetic biology is, but carry to the next level, the merger of technology and us with, with aware tattoos or, or you know, other ways that we're going to create neural links and other things that make us more or less, I don't know, human is going to be, and soon, transformational, I think, for, for society and for economies and for the world. And there's not all that much conversation about that, but this stuff, I think, is... Maybe I'm an optimist, and I think it's going to happen sooner than it is, but some of these things seem to be moving so quickly that I might actually be being pessimistic when we consider how fast some things are happening. It's, ab- it's absolutely incredible. We did a, we did a biotech roundtable a, a week or so ago, and just the, the interest, excitement, and speed of it is, is really, really, really exciting and compelling. At the same time, though, we have an education gap currently. We're talking about how AI can make things more efficient. Well, making things more efficient also eliminates jobs. And then there's the ethical quandary, so to speak, of self-enhancement and the, the, the advancement of biotech. How do you think about some of these ethical challenges that we have most likely as a species coming forward? Well, I think they're going to be so hard. I'm kind of glad that I'm, I'm not the one who has to figure them out because they're going to be daunting. Mostly what we do with ethical cha- challenges like having... 1,500 high schools that might be defined as dropout factories. By we, we deal with them by putting them in the sand and ignoring them, or or the fact that you know there's a couple of school shootings every year. But by sending thoughts and prayers and doing nothing, that's sort of our, our typical answer to it's, unbeli- it's unbelievable. So it's I've unbelievable. been living, I've been living in Europe and just hearing more and more about how. How in God's name do people let this happen in the U.S.? And right. obviously, right. we can't really solve this on a podcast, but we can kind of talk about some of the issues. That's um, that's one of the things that I think can be uh can be a shining light, so to speak, in the future is the the difference between formal and informal education. I think informal education is becoming more and more valuable and important. Yeah, um, it, it's interesting. I, I think the line's getting blurred, right? Like, like, is it is it informal to go on Code Academy and and learn how to code or is that formal? Uh, we, we funded a company to Magic K-12 called Accredible, which is, which is kind of helping people get accreditation for the informal stuff. So then what's the difference? <laughs> the <laughs> price, that's for one. You get it. Well, the price might be a difference, but that's not, that's, that's not a difference in substance. Um, what, what might be difference is, is how people interpret those credentials. But again, if, 
over time, that takes care of itself too, because if the credentials work, if you really learn this stuff, then, and if you become an effective employee, then the credentials end up becoming valuable or just as valuable as maybe a Harvard degree. So, but I do agree. I, I think that, you know, we're in this interesting space, Matt, where we've created an ADD generation who is also able to absorb information from a broader variety of sources than ever before. So, if we can help those folks learn how to learn effectively, really learn and really absorb information and really think critically, then the world gets interesting. If, if in fact, we can't do that and we've just created people who jump from idea to idea and can't think critically, then we've got deep, deep problems and, uh, that, that, um, that will, uh, will cause society to have to make some hard decisions, I think. I think we're going to have to make some hard decisions either way. The question yes. is, who makes those decisions? Is it the people? Is it government? Or is it corporations? And I don't know. Well, the people, the people can only make decisions insofar as who they put in power or where they spend their money. So <laughs> I guess the answer is corporations and governments via people. Now, the question is, will people be making decisions on their own or will they be, will they be manipulated into making decisions? I, I was just listening to a, another podcast with Jaron uh, Lanier. and. Um, you know, he believes the biggest problem we have right now is that is is the manipulation of people as opposed to as opposed to anything else, as opposed to whether services should be free or for pay or whatever. It's just that people are getting manipulated and and without their knowledge, <laughs> maybe with their complicity. And and uh, so it's it's a little unclear as to who's making those decisions. Maybe corporations are making all the decisions and governments are going along because that's what corporations want. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. If you look at the, the dichotomy between the US and China, the US has much more of an advertising economy. China has much more of a, a paper surface type economy. And well, the governments couldn't be more different, they also, in a lot of ways, feel pretty similar. Well, that's, that's quite a statement. I, I think the difference between our governments right now is that the Chinese government is probably more competent than our government. That's uh, that's a, at least they, they they seem to hit their goals more effectively. That's uh, that's un that's unquestionable. Well, they're not led by an idiot. That is also that is also unquestionable. They seem to not be to quite... get to, not to get political on a on a um, angel investing. We haven't even talked about angel investing. But how'd, you into, how'd you get into angel investing? I think it all ties together because being able to look at look at some of these big industries and understand them from a from an operator perspective, you don't necessarily need to even talk about the the exactness of of different investments to if you have a better feel for blockchain, if you have a better feel for edtech, AI, etc. Especially, I mean, YC has a pretty darn good reputation. I imagine a lot of people would learn just from your perspective on that in terms of where they should be looking for investments. Yeah. Um, well, when I left Yahoo in 2006, I, I wanted to sort of do a bit of a reset and think about what I was going to do next. So as I was starting to think about doing a company in the edtech space, I, I just sort of naturally fell into doing some angel investing. And so that's how I started doing it. I'd done a tiny bit while I was at Yahoo, but hardly any because I had a very broad role there and it didn't seem what, that, that, from my sense of ethics, that just seemed wrong. So I didn't. So I, I really started doing that once I left. And you said you put on a, you put on a bit of a, a, a demonstration, so to speak, or a class for angel investors through YC. You covered yes. some of the you covered some of the highlights, the lowlights, the mistakes. Can you take us through just the basics of that? Uh, of startup investor school, it was a um, it was a four day class where um, where a mix of Y Combinator partners and outside folks came in and tried to elaborate on the best practices 
for how to think about investing, how to organize yourself, how to work with startup companies, how to find startup companies. So there's a bunch of, of, of YC folks who talked, but also I invited a, a bunch of, of a number of angel investors to come in, some of who turned pro now, but who were originally angel investors, people like Jeff Clavier, but also, also folks like Elad Gill and, and folks like that to, to Andrea Zurich, for example, to, to talk about how they do what they do. Some of these folks have been extremely successful. But also, like I said, internal YC folks who've done a ton of investing. I, I talked a bunch. Uh, Paul Bukite, who's my partner Y Combinator, talked about what he's learned in angel investing. He, he's done probably more angel investments than almost anyone else in the world at this point. So, um, so the course the course was pretty compressed, but it was pretty intense. A couple of, it was two hours a day for for four days, or so two lectures, so eight lectures over a four day period, and um, it was live streamed to to thousands of people. It was pretty cool. What are the highlights for people listening in terms of mistakes or things to look for? In angel investing? Yeah, to be a more successful angel. I'd say, the, I'd say look, the, this content is all freely available online and you can find it by just searching on, uh, going to Y Combinator, you can just search for it. It's, it's all on YouTube as well. So I, I would say go, go look at the talks. They're not that long. It was only about eight hours worth. But I'll give you one common mistake, which is to fall in love more with the idea than the team. Ooh, that's a, that's a tough one because then you want to run the company and running the company never works. Well, that's also a common error. But yeah, like trying, trying to be an operator when you're not, when you're just an investor is a bad idea. The team has to figure out how to do it themselves. And, and that's the real message there. If, you, if you're not investing in a team that's going to, going to fight their way through, if, like, if you have to take over and do it, that's a bad sign. Unless you're going to go full-time, more than full-time. And most angel investors don't want to do that anymore. Most angel investors are, are kind of, you know, dabblers. Lazy. Unless you're Elon and you're sleeping on the floor. Rocking. Yeah. Elon doesn't do all that much angel investing. He picks off a few things, but yeah, he's mostly doing his own thing. I don't know. His own thing that he, he angel invested to get started in. Right. Exactly. But uh, what... um. So next question or starting to wrap things up for you. If you were a student today, what would you focus on and why? Let's say you were 18. If I were 18, what would I focus on? Yeah. Would you go to college? What would you study? Would you join a startup? I, I would go to college and I would, tr I think the, I, again, I, I, here's what I tell them. I have a son who just started college and a son who's a junior in college. And I tell them to, to do the things that they're most interested in and try to grow. <laughs> and, you know, I think if you have someone who is, who has a bent towards software, I would learn about software because I think it's useful in almost any role no matter what you're in. So, uh, you know, I, I love software. I love writing software. I still write software. I, I, I um, you know, that was something I fell in love with when I was 13. <laughs> so, so if you can fall in love with that, that's great. But if not, well, I, I would get exposed to it. But, you know, it, it's always smart to follow the things that you're into. Now, if you're into entrepreneurship and you think you want to be a founder and you're 18, then I say, figure out how to build things. And if you can't build it yourself, find people who can build things and then like build stuff together. Find people who you want to start companies with and then, and then do that soon as you get out of school, probably. I mean, if something happens and you, you end up being like Mark Zuckerberg and finding something that takes off when you're 19, then you have a hard decision to make. Do you finish school or not? And sometimes it makes sense not to. So, you know, it made sense not to for Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg. It made sense for David Philo and Jerry Yang and Larry and Sergey to not finish their PhDs. But, you know, it depends. So hard calls to make there. But, you know, you should be so 
lucky to have to make that kind of hard call because whatever you're doing is working so well. And it's a little skewed because we only hear about the big wins. We rarely hear about the mega or the... the well, you don't. You don't. <laughs> they don't. They go away. They do something different. Absolutely. If you had to leave people with something, a quote, a call to action, a statement, et cetera, what would it be? I'll say two different things if I might. Um, I think that if, you know, I'm just giving advice to that 18 year old, I would say spend time on something you love doing and make a difference. And if that means being an entrepreneur, then make something people want, which happens to be Y Combinator's logo, Y Combinator's motto. And uh, I think a pretty good one. I think it's an incredibly good one as well. Jeff, I want to thank you for coming on. I know you're an incredibly busy guy. Where is the best place for people to learn more about you or say, hey? Um, Google. <laughs> if you want to say, hey, I'm, uh, I'm Jeff, G-E-O-F-F at YCombinator.com. I'm G. Ralston at Twitter, but I, I try to stay out of, I try to like, like if people, sometimes if people DM me, I think like you did, I'll respond. If it, but like, I, I try to stay out of, I never try to get into arguments on Twitter because that's like, that, that's in general in social media, I think that's, there's no win. People are, one thing I've learned is like, people can be so mean. Like I, I, like, I think it's a, a good, maybe that's another thing to leave with. Program wrote an essay on this, like, be nice, be kind. That's a better way to go through life and you'll probably be more successful in anything you do by doing that. And somehow people forget that when they get online. So I try to stay away from it as much as I can. Yeah, the, the lack of empathy from having the either anonymity or perceived anonymity. Whatever it is, whatever it is, man, it, it makes people just the worst part of themselves. Facebook newsfeed eradicator. It's great. Just use Facebook for messages. Just use Twitter for messages. And then right. maybe YouTube and right Twitter for, for posting stuff. Thanks so much right. for coming on today, Jeff. This has been a lot of fun. You're welcome. Nice talking to you, Matt. And thanks for tuning in, guys. Hope you've enjoyed this. And if you have, leave a review. Thanks. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.